All right, so um, as I was saying, uh, often whenever Marilyn and I travel, uh, we go to, when we go to a church, we often find that um, something weird is happening, like the elder is speaking as opposed to the usual pastor. Um, and so uh, this, this spring, uh, we actually had the privilege of spending about a week in Edinburgh in Scotland. And so we decided on, on the Sunday that we were there that we would go to church in, in town. And so uh, if you've been there, Edinburgh is a very hilly place. There's, it's you know, kind of mountainous. And so uh, we thought we were running late. And we ran up what felt like a mountain of stairs to the evangelical church I'd found on Google Maps. And uh, when we got there, there were only about four people in the congregation at the time. But we were, you know, we were greeted at the door, and they welcomed us in and had us, uh, led us to the, the seats. And they were singing, there was uh, a praise band singing praise songs. Um, it seemed a little half-hearted, but we, we sang along with them. And, uh, and so uh, then we sat down, they stopped singing, we sat down, and nothing else really seemed to happen. Um, and uh, so I checked my phone, and I realized that I'd read the time wrong, um, that we were actually about half an hour early. Uh, I thought we were about half an hour late. We were actually half an hour early. And that the church didn't start, the service didn't start for, um, at that point, another 15 minutes or so. So we, we stayed for the actual service, um, but when the service ended, uh, with what seemed to be a benediction, no one left. The church was by this time actually full. It was, uh, the, the whole building was, was full, but everyone was still sitting there. So we sat for a while thinking, well, this is maybe what they do in Scotland, and nothing really happened. And so we were starting to talk to each other, like, is this when we leave? And this guy that was in front of us turned around, and he said that he was the senior pastor, of course, because, of course, the pastor wasn't speaking that day because we were there. And uh, he, uh, he turned around to greet us, and we talked a little bit about uh, our experiences with, I mean, he's, that, that church supports Redeemer or is uh, part of the Redeemer uh, network. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about living in New York, that kind of thing. Um, but then he turned back around, and the people still sat in silence. And so figuring that we had castles to go to, we got up and, and left. Um, and I'm still not exactly sure what was going on. It was the Free Church of Scotland. I've looked on their website, which, by the way, they take down on Sundays, um, which is sort of interesting to honor the day of rest. Um, but uh, they, I, we never really did figure out what was going on there. So if any of you know anything about their tradition, you can tell me after the service. Um, but it struck me as uh, an apt metaphor of what I'm talking about in today's message. We all believe that Jesus Christ has come, uh, long awaited, uh, the, the one that the uh, anointed, the anointed one that the prophets spoke about, the one who all of the Old Testament stories in some way are meant to prefigure, ha has come. The service has started at last, and we know that it changed everything. But on the surface, on the other hand, from a purely earthly perspective, it seems like at this point 2,000 years later, relatively little has changed. A major new religion was established that quickly spread across the Western Hemisphere, but wars and rumors of wars continue, and the curse of Eden is still very much felt among us. The incongruity between our lived experience and the gospel, which teaches that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and that by his death he canceled the curse on the children of Eden, is a challenge that all of us are left to reconcile. It was a challenge, it seems, even in the early church, uh, in the passage that we read today in the book of Second Peter, the readers are warned, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing as they do, and uh, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. It sounds like 
if you read around in this passage, that the, the scoffers that Peter is talking about have their own impure motivations for asking these questions. But I think a sincere believer might have some of the same doubts. Jesus made it clear that the kingdom of God and all its end of the current world power was coming soon within the generation of those with whom he walked and talked. And even before that, the promise of the Messiah was indistinguishable from the setting right of political and natural wrongs. A deliverer of souls, a Messiah whose kingdom was mostly invisible, may be what humanity most needed. But readers of the prophets could have been forgiven for believing it was not alone what we were promised. The Old Testament uh, prophet Isaiah had said that when the root of Jesse came, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the infant will play near the cobra's nest, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Clearly, this isn't the situation now. But Jesus said he was coming back soon, presumably to fulfill these, these prophecies. But even by the time of the letter that second, but even by the time that the letter of Second Peter was written, soon didn't seem to be soon by any usual understanding of that word. Many scholars and even some of the early church fathers believe that Second Peter was probably written in the second century, perhaps based on Peter's writings and teachings, but to an audience several generations removed from the first Christians. Even those that uh, believe in an earlier date uh, during Peter's lifetime that this uh, letter was put together believe that it was probably written about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, at least. So if we accept the later date, when the scoffers talk about the ancestors who died, they might mean that ever since the first generation of Christians died, everything continues as it has since the beginning of creation. And actually, even if we believe in a second and an earlier date, that, that is around 60 AD or so, it could be that Peter is foreseeing an argument. He says in the last days, the scoffers will come and make this argument in the last days, that uh, they will say even ever since our ancestors, that is the first Christians died, everything continues as it always has. And Peter takes these scoffers seriously enough to offer a couple of responses to their doubts, however insincere they might have been. In this season that we're in today, post-Advent, post-Christmas, when the presents are opened, the dinners have been eaten, and the family has mostly, I think, returned home, I thought it would be good to reflect on these responses as we wait and watch for the second coming 2,000 years after his first. Peter has three responses to the scoffers that I will discuss in order. First, the, the work of God continues. Second, soon needs to be redefined. And third and finally, a delay in judgment can be mercy. So first, Peter reminds us that God is the, the work of God continues and is very active. In response to the scoffers who claim that everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, Peter points out that God has been pretty active since Adam and Eve left Eden, and that we would not even recognize the world as it existed immediately after the fall, as it was swept away by Noah's flood. He writes, but they, that is the scoffers, deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, 
being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, if you were to pick, if I was to pick an, a, an illustration from the Old Testament to jump to to show that God was still has been very active since the uh, since creation, I, I probably wouldn't have jumped to the flood. Um, what about God revealing Himself to Abraham or the del- deliverance of? his people through Moses, or even the resurrection of Jesus, which showed that death itself was not as final as it previously seemed. We have all these moments in the Old Testament story that we've been looking at over the last uh, couple of months that that seem to me maybe more natural examples to jump to. But I think Peter is carefully taking apart the the scoffer's argument, which claims that nothing has happened since the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed since the beginning of creation. And so he goes first to that idea that they proposed the idea of creation itself. What do they mean by that? So Peter goes back to to say, well, what is creation? He says, remember, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. There are several reminders here. First of all, that creation is itself a work of God. Uh, To say that things go on as they have since the beginning of creation is not a statement of the absence of the work of God, but rather its continuation. So if things are continuing, it means that God is still at work. Um, And he also points out that God's word created the heavens out of nothing, but in the Genesis creation story, the creation of earth was a matter of dividing the waters, first the skies from the surface of the earth, and then the land from the sea. The flood, then, was not just a divine disaster, but a deliberate unmaking of creation, allowing what was separated to become indistinct once more. By bringing this up, Peter is pointing out that God did uncreate once and that we cannot count on even the seemingly unchanging laws of nature. His rainbow is a promise that the next uncreation will not come from water, but there is an even more fundamental uncreation that is coming. Peter says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Remember, remember that the heavens were created by God's word, and then he, God separated the earth from the heavens by dividing the waters. With Noah, God removed his hand and let the waters flow over the earth again and destroyed that, but he's now poised to withdraw the word that preserves the heavens and the earth from the fire of his glory and wrath. The continuation of the world just as it always been, just as it always was, is not evidence of uh, God's absence, but of his activity. This is actually similar to an argument that the author of Hebrews makes in chapter 12 of that book. See to it that you do not refuse, this is uh, verse 25 in chapter 12 of Hebrews if you you want to look. Um, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if the people did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but heaven as well. The words, once more, signify the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that the unshakable may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude, and so worship God uh, acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The next shaking of the earth and heaven will completely unmake the temporary, and whatever is left will be imperishable, refined by fire that burns up the dross. And finally, there's a a third and implicit point in this part of the argument. 
when the scoffers say everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, they're really say, saying, I think, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of my lifetime. A lesson here is to remember to be careful about making an assumption or inference about the fundamental nature of reality based on observation or empirical data alone. Hamlet warns Horatio, there are more things in heaven and in earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, and we should likewise be humble in what we claim to know about the nature of reality when we grow impatient waiting for the coming of Christ. We should instead remember the miraculous works of God in history, and perhaps as a way of getting there, the miraculous works of God in our own life. What comings of the Lord have you seen? Maybe it was even years ago, but compared to Noah's flood, it was relatively recent. Remember these when the not yet fully redeemed state of the world and your own life tests your faith. And all that's well and good, except we have this promise that Jesus is coming soon. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. And there's the promise that Jesus made on earth. At that time, the, pe uh, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Truly, I tell you, this generation will, not, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And this has been a difficult passage for Christians since the very beginning. Um, some uh, apologists, people that try to argue for the accuracy of the New Testament, point out that including this was a, a risky move, that if the New Testament was meant to be just a, a, essentially a series of legends or something, they probably wouldn't have included this, this passage because it so clearly doesn't seem to have taken place. And this is perhaps what Peter's uh, scoffers are talking about here. Jesus said he would send his angels before this generation passed away. But the scoffers say, our ancestors who knew Jesus have all died, and there hasn't been such a gathering. So Peter's second response to these scoffers is to reset the idea of soon. He reminds his readers that God lives outside of time, and so it may seem to be an eternity to us, maybe a few seconds in the larger scope of the universe. Uh, Marilyn and I spent a good portion of uh, the Christmas break uh, with our younger nephews and nieces, and uh, that was a reminder that the perception of time varies greatly depending on your age experience. Um, we were a couple of minutes late, uh, for instance, to uh, when we were supposed to open presents, and uh, that was, I'm sure, an eternity to, to Zane. Um, as a child myself, I remember that a year, I remember actually looking at a Berenstein Bears book about the calendars and uh, thinking that a year was the longest period of time I could wrap my head around. But now, seven years after moving to the New York City area, area I still feel somewhat new in town. And though I've lived here longer than in any other region uh, since graduating from high school 20 years ago, um, it still feels like a fairly short period of time. And consider them the ancient days, a thousand years to him is indeed a day, and a th several thousand years might indeed be soon. But there is this promise that the generation will not pass away before all these things will come to pass. And there are many interpretations that biblical scholars have offered up for the seemingly broken promise of this passage. For myself, C.S. Lewis's argument that right after Jesus uh, says this thing about the generation not passing away, he goes on to say, but about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So a specific date could not have been what he had in mind when he was talking about the generation that would not pass away. And we have another example in the Old Testament of a time when it seemed like we had a promise of a, a, a time period when something would happen when it 
didn't seem to in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9, uh, Daniel writes that in the first year of the reign of Xerxes, he remembered Jeremiah's prophecy that the desolation of the temple, or of the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And at the time that Daniel is writing in Daniel 9, this time is up, it's been 70 years. Daniel doesn't scoff or doubt, but if you read the, that chapter, he instead approaches the Lord with humility. He acknowledges that the exile was a just response to Israel's sin, but he asks God to redeem his people because it will bring God greater glory since the Israelites bear his name. Daniel doesn't even explicitly mention the promise that he feels is not being kept, but he humbly asks God to be merciful. His prayer ends, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. And Daniel continues, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in, an earlier, in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Gabriel goes on to explain that the promise of the 70 years was in fact a promise of 70 weeks of years, that is 77s or 490 years, but the response comes to Daniel speedily. And despite the rapidity of the answer, Daniel says he was still praying when he got the response from Gabriel. Gabriel almost seems to apologize for being a bit slow. He explains how messages get conveyed in the heavenly realms and says, I, I got the word and then I ran it to you as soon as you started asking about it. Um, so when we, in our waiting, find our faith tested by what seems to be broken promises, the best response seems not to be to scoff with disbelief, saying, well, I never believed that silliness anyway, but to bring our questions to God in humility. It may be that you learn that your interpretation was wrong, but that God gives wisdom to those who sincerely ask for it. Back to Second Peter, though. Peter finally ends his response to the scoffers by reminding his readers that the coming of the Lord isn't something that we should expect impatiently unless we're absolutely sure we're ready. This is the third point, that, uh, that delay can be a mercy. Remember that the coming of the Lord is the withdrawing of the word that preserves the universe from fire. Peter says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Remember how the day of the Lord is described in the prophecies of Joel, for instance. The day of the Lord is great, it is ter uh, dreadful, who can endure it? And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. As we wait, we must remember that what we wait for is both a cause of great joy but also a cause of fear and trembling. Peter writes, but on that day, the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the heavens will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of, Lord, uh, the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. 
that in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is, to me, a frightening passage. The coming of the Lord is something we must be ready for. And if we're not, it will be a terrible time. I'm... I'm deeply suspicious of the whole 15 Minutes in Heaven series of books, so I somewhat hesitate to even share this experience. But I offer it today as a metaphor, somewhat like the story of Marilyn and I in the Scottish church, rather than, in a story that, rather than as a story that I feel is truly uh, revelatory about the nature of death and judgment. The men in my family, my brother, my dad, and I, all have what seems to be a very strong tendency to what I understand to be called vasovagal syncope, that is, fainting due to nervous triggers. For my brother and I, it seems to be re related to a loss of sensation, like when you hit your funny bone or a local anesthetic uh, at the dentist office. And when this happens, my pulse apparently becomes, uh, well, I faint, and uh, my pulse apparently becomes so, uh, so not findable that medical staff tend to freak out and call the paramedics. And I'm always OK. I come back to consciousness. But it freaks people out, and the paramedics come, and it's a pain. Anyway, it's, it's happened to me several times. Um, and uh, what I remember about each time is that I, right before I come back into consciousness, I sort of wake up, but I'm aware that I'm unconscious, I'm unconscious and I can't, I can't wake up. And I feel this sense of terrifying confusion and being tossed about in sickening waves. And there's a sense of awesome immensity that I can only kind of compare to maybe looking at the ocean or the Grand Canyon or the night sky. And I generally become really aware of my sin, and I try to confess and repent it, uh, but that only seems to make it worse. And only when I resign myself to justice, the sense that whatever is happening is ultimately right, and that I can't control it at all, that, that it is purely good, whatever my place in it may be, do I begin to w wake up and hear the voices of the nurses calling my name. My takeaway from this is that and the metaphor, again, I think this is just a metaphor, is that the day of judgment might be a bit like this. It may be terrible, and we may be acutely aware of our own inability to offer anything in our own defense. If we are redeemed, if we are to be redeemed and survive it, it is because our souls are hidden with Christ, who will not be shaken when all, when all that is temporary and can be shaken is and absorbed by the roiling flames. This Helpless confession of our own inability to do anything to save ourselves is our only hope of salvation. However, if our life is secure in Christ, there also seems to be an idea in Scripture that we can invest properly in the state of the kingdom that we will wake into once our souls emerge from the judgment day. Jesus told us to store our treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thieves cannot reach them. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes in the context of missionary church planting, but with implications that I think can extend beyond that, by the grace God has given to me, I laid the foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be revealed for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. But if what is built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss and yet will be saved, even as though escaping, even, as, even only as one escaping through the flames. 
once we remember and truly believe that Jesus is coming back, we must also remember that the day of the Lord will involve a terrible testing of all of our work. Salvation is through faith alone in God's grace, but there is some way in which what we do on earth will be judged and rewarded in the new life we will receive. As we wait, we can begin to invest in the kingdom to come, not because it will earn our salvation. That's impossible. We're far too depraved and corrupted by this doomed world for anything that we do to earn us a place in heaven. However, there does seem to be a promise that we can enjoy certain immortal treasures in the world that we can put on deposit now and live to redeem if we trust our souls to the mercy of Christ. As Peter concludes, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Jesus' return is real, and probably sooner than any of us expect. I feel like the reminder that no one knows the day or hour usually feels like a comfort to me to reject those who claim without justification that they know Jesus is coming on March 31st or something. Um, but the reality is that the day and time might be much sooner than any of those prophecies. John Donne's famous question is one we should all keep in mind. What if this present were the world's last night? It might actually be. And even if not the world's writ large, there are thousands of ways that it might actually be our own last night. So is there anything in your life right now that you know violates the exhortation of Peter to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Jesus? As hard as it may be to set right, I can't think of a time when I found something that I had to give up or confess to finally feel better than being at peace with Jesus. As we move from our memory of the first advent in the Christmas season, let us anticipate the second advent with fear and trembling, which are the beginning of wisdom, but also eventually with joy that comes from knowing the love that ultimately casts out all fear. I know this is a difficult teaching. It was a difficult one for me to put together, and so I, I pray that we can all support each other as the body of Christ and better conform to his immortal and incorruptible image.